Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast, everyone. This is Ryan, and we are going to continue our conversation with Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum. She loves the Spurs. She's a Jewish New Testament scholar, and she lives in the greatest hood in the U.S. of A. That's right. If you heard part one, you figured out that she and I are pretty much best friends now. Anyway, hope you liked the episode. This is one of the most fun I've had in a conversation in a very long time. We have about two and a half two and a half hours of recorded conversation. She hung out for about three and a half hours with us. Man, so much fun. Thank you so much, Pam. If you like this episode, please share it online. We're at brew underscore theology on Twitter, at brew theology on Facebook and Instagram. And rate or review it on iTunes. Check out brewtheology.org to see the ways in which you can help us out, sponsor, partner with us, start a brew theology chapter in your hood, and get this going in your community. All right, peace, everyone. Like, I think that a lot of, at least the conservative evangelical traditions we come from, are very much grounded in modernism, in that we have to have an answer. Um, we have to have an apologetic, and we have to be able to answer every question. And so, as postmodernism becomes more normative, will that maybe open the door for that? That's a great question. You know, I'm feeling sort of cynical about postmodernism as a philosophical yeah. worldview these days, given the whole problem we have now with alternative facts and that nothing is true. And I don't, yeah. yeah. But I, I do think that there are, and, and by the way, there are some evangelicals who are writing about, po- uh, evangelical scholars who are writing about postmodernism. Interestingly, most of them are not biblical scholars. They're oh, like evangelical yeah. theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow, so yes, I think that could help. I also think a spirit of play, of spiritual play would help. So much. And I'm not sure why that's, we're not talking about gambling or card, you know, or anything that's going to hurt it or, you know. Well, but actually, I mean, I would say actually though, coming from a tradition that did not dance, and now dancing in the Church of the Nazarene, and now dancing in later life. Like, dance is a place where we must be authentic. You you can't really fake it. Like, either you're on the floor and you're going to do the thing, or you're going to stand on the edge, but there's not really a lot in between. And being able to play and be free with each other in this this space means that then we can have like real conversations and real interactions instead of trying to keep them all boxed up in the legalism of, well, I can't like see a woman move that way because it might be a temptation. And so I need to make sure that I protect myself from all of that. And like play means that that things might not go as planned. And I, I, that's been actually a huge part of my faith transition was getting exposed to a congregation where I saw the pastor running down a field barefoot after a football. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Pastors do that? Yeah. Like it was, it was like my, it was just mind blowing at that stage of my faith game. Yeah. So absolutely. I see that when you look at the Bible and theology, like let's wrestle with it and maybe we'll say something wrong and we're not going to die and it's okay. Like that and that's just not the tradition I came from. Like everything was measured and had to be correct and if you gave an idea to somebody that caused them to stumble, then you were responsible for that. Like so much pressure to have the right answer. I think play is a great answer. It is. Play is an amazing answer. Also in terms of when you think about like liberation uh, pedagogy, right? Like play is required for liberation uh, pedagogy and like epistemology that's liberating, right? Mm -hmm. And that's uh, sort of like the, I guess the most boiled down, probably oversimplistic, you know, banking education, right? And that's, those are using secular terms, but play is really necessary for, for learning to take place. And, and it's interesting to think about it in a, in a theological, uh, realm, because that's not where we talk about that. You know, maybe we should have a Bible study podcast thing (laughs) where we just, you know, pick a text 
and read it together. And, and by the way, so, sometimes students mistake midrash for just um, so much freedom that they're not paying to the biblical text. But like the midrash I just told you, with Moses not being a very good student, the, bye-bye, the, bye, the rabbis have a biblical reason for that. Moses himself says he's slow of speech. Right. So midrash is a little more, there are rules of the game. Um, there, there are, and, and, uh, about 10 years ago, the first online class I ever taught, I decided, well, I'm in a whole world, new world of teaching. I might as well experiment. See, I taught a class unlike any other I taught called how to read the Bible. I divided it into three parts. One was sort of the academic historical readings. Another part was political readings. And there we read like sermons, for and against abolition of the 19th century and how people use the Bible or how people use the, you know. And then the last one was creative uses of the Bible and retellings from Dante to whatever. And so I had would have the students read some things. And the final assignment was to write Midrash. And they could do it. They could record a song. They could write an epic poem. But they had to engage a biblical text. Here's the thing. I hope my students a decade ago aren't listening. Um, (laughs) They really disappointed me because either they were still slavishly, they gave me sort of just the same story with extra words thrown in. They just made it longer and laborious to read. Or they had fancy flights of imagination with no... um, no and no real engagement with the Bible. Like I still wanted them to read the Bible seriously, and so um, I, somehow we couldn't. Find, and also, I realized how do I freaking grade an assignment like that? That was my own. You know, I realized I don't. I normally am. Sorry, kind of a pedestrian teacher in that regard. Like, did you know it? Did you read the stuff? Did you you know? But this was asking students to do more. I would like to revisit doing assignments like that. But I realize I need to cultivate to teach the students to engage the Bible that way. And just reading a Dante or um, a JB or or whatever the case might be didn't do it enough for them. That's an interesting point I think you make, too, is that and, and I'm not as familiar with Midrash and I'm excited to to dive into that a little bit more. But. But there's, you know, in a sense of teaching or in a sense of opening up a community of dialogue, there's this uh, concern that playfulness is um, is just, yeah, like you described, there's no rules. And there's, you know, it's uh, it's a fly by the seat of your pants willy nilly. And and maybe there's a role somewhere in there yeah. that 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 is that maybe that's the first stage. Right. Right. But the final right. products that you're describing should engage in a serious way, the material that you are becoming playful with and experimenting with and, um, and, and uh, examining. So that's an interesting right. distinction. So one of the things I had my students read that the same year I'm thinking about in that class is a novel called the red tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know this? It's, it's a beautiful, wonderfully done. It's one of the best examples I think of modern day midrash. I don't know that the author used that language, she did. But again, if you're paying attention to her story, to that novel, you'll see, which is this, you know, rereading and retelling of what we normally call the rape of Dina, where it's not a rape, it's a love affair. Um, And trying to get my students to see that she saw ambiguities in the text so she could deviate from an Orthodox reading that in that case is Orthodox in Judaism too, let me just point out, but which she exploited and then opened up broadly. But not only was it a wonderful novel, but it did help me read the story different, like it was a credible reading of yeah. the biblical story itself. It was amazing. Um, yeah. So I have like three, four questions in my head rattling around right now. Uh you know, Are you we? Can just cut me off at any point if I'm <laughs> no, not no, this, answering the question. This is good. This is all um, well. This is exciting stuff here. We're going to so, bring you back, and we're going to do this Bible study thing. Yeah, we should. We have yeah. to. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, experiment with it a few times. Sure. Play and see what happens. So we're, right? we're, we're, we're what talking about we to lose. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about midrash, and then you had mentioned something about orthodoxy in the in the Jewish realm. 
So when you talk about orthodoxy, you have the written Torah and you have the oral Torah. So then we have the Mishnah, the Talmud, which most Christians just look at and go, oh, that's like Jewish literature. And they just kind of dismiss it, but they don't understand. You had mentioned orthodoxy. And can you can you expound upon that yeah. in a way that may, might help a lot of Westerners who are, don't even have any idea what the Talmud is outside of, oh, it's just right. a Jewish text? Right. Uh, this is a great question. Actually, when I teach Introduction to the New Testament, because I know it's the only place they're going to get it, I kind of talk about what Judaism is of the same period that Christianity is born and teach them all, what is Midrash, what is the Mishnah, what is the Talmud. Um so maybe you'll come in sometime. Um, so you can fund us for classes minute. with PM on yeah. Patreon. <laughs> We're all for it. Um, but I love the informal classroom as well, by the way. I'm ready to retire and just have conversations like this, actually. Uh, so um, the one-minute version of this, the first sort of post-biblical Jewish writing that becomes authoritative, not scripture, but authoritative, would be the closest parallel, say, to the Gospels or New Testament text, is something Jews call the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is now a one-volume book. You can buy it on Amazon or go to the library and check it out um, without any training, it's a little hard to, uh, it's so different than anything else you've seen. And the rabbis sort of sometimes speak in certain patterns and code that with a little, uh, once you have somebody to help you, it's fine. It's not, but anyway, so the Mishnah is already, um, it's not a Bible commentary. It's largely a discussion about Jewish practice. It's divided into six tractates. It often draws on the Bible to justify certain kinds of practices. The Talmud is largely a commentary on the Mishnah. So it breaks up the Mishnah into individual paragraphs, and then it writes commentary and commentary upon commentary. So uh, a page of the Talmud, uh, anyone out there, Google page of the Talmud, and you'll be able to see what it looks like. The Talmud is composed over a somewhere between three and 500 years. And in it, rabbis um, are essentially interacting with the Mishnah and the Bible, bringing the Bible into the conversation. And, and the Talmud would, will portray rabbis of different centuries even talking to each other to debate their interpretations of the Bible. So it's one big conversation yeah, see, that's the Mishnah in the center column. So Rob has just pulled it up. And then the ancient stuff is around here. Down here is um, a commentary by Rashi, who comes later, but his sort of comments on the Talmud become almost canonical. And by the way, the Talmud, eventually, when we get to the stage of print, becomes so standardized, more standardized than a Bible, so that people can memorize a page of the Talmud. So, so a page of the Talmud will be identified as, um, let's say, 29, you know, volume one, 29B. And one of my teachers was what was called, uh, who was called a pin rabbi. And a pin rabbi means is someone who not only has the whole Talmud memorized, but has it memorized so precisely that if you were to put a pin in one letter of it, he can tell you what letter is on the other side of the page. It's better than a computer. When I was in graduate school, if I wanted to know, where do the rabbis talk about Jerusalem? You know, he'd just kind of look up at the ceiling and rattle them off for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, and by the way, the Talmud is many, many, many volumes long. Uh, many, many. And that the reason for this comes out of book burnings in the medieval period, so that no matter if the written text was, was lost, um, it would be preserved in people's minds. L let me also say, because you brought this up, and this is an important distinction, Jews... Uh, believe in the Torah. The Torah is the central script. The, yes, it's the Bible, but the Torah, the five books, 
is kind of the canon within the canon, right? Um, you cannot, Jews, here's where they're absolute fundamentalists. Copying the Torah or getting every single letter right is utterly essential. You don't screw that up. What you say in your interpretation, the Midrash, is there's a lot of freedom there. Christians, I'm actually um, working on an article about this. In Christianity, it's almost like the reverse. From the very beginning, Christians didn't care how you copied the Bible, if you translated it. Um, uh, you'll invite me back sometime, give a lecture showing early Christian manuscripts and just how messy they are, and people cross things out and wrote them again. Again, this is when I talked about the other night, the doctrine of inerrancy didn't exist until we, we get to print, because the scribes that are copying this stuff, it never even would have occurred to them. And if you see just how many errors they're making, you'd get that. But so Christians never policed, there were no rules about how scribes copied the Bible. There, there's a whole tractate of the Talmud about how a scribe copies the Bible. A Torah is either kosher or it's not kosher, and you don't use it if it isn't kosher. Um, so, but Christians, while they were very liberal about the jot and the tittle, Jews are worried about the jot and the tittle, Christians, we don't care. But what you think it means... <laughs> They'll kill you over that. So I've often wondered, <laughs> there are correlations there. I've often wondered if there's a cause and effect. Is it be, because if you're going to, if we're going to be a community, so let me point to the three of you, since you're Christian or in some fashion, Catholic or whatever, we, we can come back to whether you want to identify, yeah, whatever you are. Okay. Or just for the sake of argument, let's say you are. Okay. Now, if you want to understand yourself in some sort of relationship with other Christians, you go to a Baptist church, you go to a Catholic church in Latin America, you go to a Catholic church in, um, in India, whatever the case may be, you know that the four Gospels are what they read. Maybe you can't read the Hindi or whatnot, but they're probably going to say the Lord's Prayer. There are certain things they're going to do. Without some sort of canonical tradition the center of gravity of religious traditions would dissolve and it would be very hard to maintain community. The way Jews ensured a center, a gravitational center, I think, was through a written Torah, a reform synagogue, the, the most lefty Jewish community you can imagine. And Boulder is the home of something called Jewish renewal. You want to get as kind of you know, crazy, an Orthodox Jew would say renewal Judaism is barely Jewish, right? <laughs> but when they read from a Torah, liturgically, they read from a Torah, they read from the same Torah, that, a kosher Torah than an Orthodox Jew is. They, they still value that. So there's, we're all still reading Genesis when we're reading Genesis. How we might interpret it so that gays and lesbians can in interpret the story of Sodom and Gomorrah differently than the Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn might be doing, right? Sure. But they're all still reading Genesis. Now, what happens in a Christian tradition where people can translate the Bible into anything and it can take any form and everything else, I think what sort of happened, this is my sympathetic view, is church fathers said, we got to agree on something to recognize each other. So... This thing called the Trinity, we, we don't, we, we need something to stand on. And so this is my very loosey-goosey and in some ways unscholarly kind of version, uh, explanation of why Christianity is so fixated or attaches to these very literal meanings because what else do you have? So, so let's, it, where you don't have, especially in, uh, I guess, what you call low church tradition, so in a Baptist, right? Especially There's in America. That, right, right, in the U.S. Like, is there anything that mandates a Baptist Sunday service go in a certain order? Nope. Right. There's probably a traditional practice that it goes in a certain order, but there's nothing the way a, a, a Catholic liturgy proceeds in a certain. There's certain things, you know, if you if you don't do certain things, it's not a mass. Correct. Right. So the same thing in Judaism. If you don't do certain things, you don't. If you didn't read from a Torah scroll, you didn't. You you can have a book of the Bible, but you didn't ritually read. You didn't do the service. The thing. Yeah. Right. 
That's very true. Like I come, I mean, my tradition is, I guess, fairly low Uh because while our founder came out of the Methodist church, Mm -hmm. um, Nazarenes are very focused on piety, AKA legalism and simplicity. And so any sort of like ritualized service was totally frowned upon in the part of the country, especially that I came from. So yeah, like what, did make us like looking back like we didn't even say the creeds we took communion once a month maybe maybe like that wasn't even mandated right you don't have to which is interesting that many protestant traditions i mean jesus says do this right this is from this is not only in the gospels but even paul preserves the eucharist there's no doubt that this is a really early christian ritual right so but it becomes it special. So, it, it becomes because special. Because okay. it's special, you don't do it every week. That's okay. the way it's explained you? away. Okay. That it we we reserve this for maybe a couple times a year at most once a month, but it's special. So we don't just do it all the time because then it becomes ordinary and we okay. won't okay. value so what God is doing in it if you okay. even go okay. so, so far there's as, a rationale. For, yeah. Okay. So there's a thoughtful rationale for it. Yeah. So then ultimately bringing this all back, what you're saying is while the text is Orthodox, the conversation is also Orthodox. Right. So you hold them together. Right. And it's not, you're, gonna, you're not going to like say, well, one's better than the other. Uh, whereas in Protestant Christianity and Catholicism, no, it's, um, there's Orthodoxy. Okay. And that trumps even orthopraxy to a degree. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about the Talmud is that many questions about the interpretation of the Bible are left unresolved. I'll tell you, okay, so this is one of the most famous stories from um, um, the Talmud and it, because it, it also deals with um, hermeneutics and what's legitimate interpretation. So there's a story set in the context of a rabbinic academy. So the rabbis, the sort of social context in which they did what they did was essentially the schoolroom. So they're sort of really kind of academics of their day. They hang out and debated these questions. So one day, they're in the classroom and they're debating these kinds of questions. And uh, the question had come up. A woman had come to... um, the rabbis, they sort of become the sort of um, arbiters of questions of Jewish law. Because in the post-biblical period, there's no Jewish state in this, you know, where you can have a political state. So rabbis, eventually, it takes a while, become, people look to them as the authority. They're knowledgeable. So a new oven has been invented Okay, a new oven has been invented, and I don't know all the details not described, but somehow it combines certain kind of um, tiles. So, right, clay is made, you take sand and pottery and you fire it in a certain way, combined with another kind of pottery-making system, right? This oven is supposed to be much better in uh, moderating heat. So this woman wants to use this new kind of oven, but the question has arisen whether the oven is kosher because the Bible also says, the Torah says, that you sh- you don't mix wool and flax, mm-hmm. right? You know this, you don't mm-hmm. mix because God created the things he created and you're not supposed to create something new. Plastic is a very big sin from that perspective, by the way, let me just say. So in any case... Um, so the rabbis extend from this, the wool and flax stuff means you don't, they're sort of taking the spirit of it means you don't combine things that shouldn't be me. So, so the woman wants to know, are these things different enough that it's not legitimate or is it okay for me to use it? So the rabbis, Rabbi Akiva's in this story too, I'm pretty sure, they agree, no, we think it's kosher, it's fine. One rabbi Rabbi Alicia Benabuya, who in the Talmud is often this renegade figure, says, um, no, it's not kosher. And I can't remember what rationale he gives, but it's, it's really not a very good one. And he basically says, I have divine authority over it. And they say, well, 
everybody else in the room thinks it's kosher, so kind of screw you. And he says, look, I know God is on my side. And they're like, how do you know God's on your side? And he says, if God is on my side, let the carob tree outside the window wither and die. So everybody looks out the window. Does it sound Jesus-like? And the carob tree withers and dies. And the rabbis go, okay, well, that was impressive, but it still doesn't have anything to do with the oven. So then Alicia says, okay, I, you know, if God is on my side and knows I'm right, let the, there's a, a stream running outside, let it run upstream. The water will run upstream. And sure enough, the water runs upstream. And the rabbis say, okay, okay, you know, it's very impressive still has nothing to do with the oven. And finally, (laughs) Alicia just kind of looks up to the sky and says, God, please tell everybody that I'm right. (laughs) So this voice from heaven actually doesn't speak literally, but the Talmud says the walls start to cave in, like they're going to cave in on the rabbis, and they do this out of respect, God does this out of respect for Rabbi Elisha, but he doesn't, he doesn't bury them all in the whole building out of respect for all the rest of them. But essentially, the message is, in principle, Rabbi Elisha is correct. And the rabbis say, here's how this story ends, the rabbis essentially say, well, let me tell you what it literally says, and then I'll tell you what it means the rabbis say to God, um, the Torah is not in heaven. And God says to the heavenly host, my children have defeated me again. And here's how the story is typically interpreted, that ending. When the rabbis say the Torah is not in heaven, what they mean is the Torah is from heaven, but you gave it to us on earth to interpret. And we sat in this room all day discussing this woman's oven, and we came to a conclusion. And you can't, you gave us the Torah and obligated us to interpret it, and that's what we did. So you don't get the final say, (laughs) to which God is just kind of throwing up his hands and saying, okay, you get the last word kind of thing by saying my children have defeated me. And so that's, in a sense, how the rabbis understand themselves is, and um, that also miracles, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, this is also probably a diatribe against miracle men and healing, and that, you know, authority comes from study and not from magic and that sort of thing, but this is fascinating. Yes, it is. And we're going to keep going. This is, this is so good. And so in order for us to get back to... Well, the actual well, subject. the actual yeah. subject. No, no, this is great. This is what I love about this. This is this is great. Now, to uh, to like the myths, we're gonna get to the myths in a second. Uh, but I I want to really talk about how since it's the first first night of Hanukkah right now as we're as we're recording, and we have um this you know this brutal Antiochus Epiphanes guy based in this Hellenistic empire. So how there's Western Christendom. Let's go back. Western Christendom hij- I believe hijacked the Hebrew scriptures, and it is because of Hellenism, mm-hmm. and which is important when it comes to Hanukkah. Um, so can you, uh, can you unpack that for people who are like, what is Hellenism, and what do you mean hijack the Hebrew scriptures? I thought Christianity was Jesus and Paul. Right. Come on, guys. Here, here, okay, so first of all, right, here's one of the first ironies yeah. of that, though, and it goes to show you how Judaism and Christianity are continually linked, is that the only place the story of Hanukkah is preserved is in a Catholic Bible. Okay, Cheers, so the, Rob. Sto- <laughs> the story of Hanukkah cannot be found in a Tanakh, in a Jewish Bible. Okay, it's just, it's simply not there. It's in the uh, Apocrypha, in the books of Maccabees, which are preserved in Catholic Bibles, or if you have a Protestant Bible that has the Apocrypha in it, uh, as these extra books, then you'd have it in that. But so now, but of course, the rabbis do refer to Hanukkah and it's this assumed practice, right? So, um, wait, what was the question? You, you didn't ask me to recount the story of Hanukkah, though. You asked 
what was sorry? No, I, I'm just kind of what? curious. So in in the season of Hanukkah, oh, in the spirit of ha- Hanukkah, oh, right. Hellenism had, had right. at that point had infiltrated the world as as mm-hmm. the people knew it, and so Western Christendom, and I say dome. I'm going to put the D O M on there, right? <laughs> they had the domain. Hi, I believe hijacked the Hebrew scriptures mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. we interpret them, and so all this conversation that we've been having about. Uh, right, the Mishnah, the Talmud, right. and the Midrash. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's all interconnected in this. Mm-hmm. So, um, can you just kind of talk about okay. Okay. the differences Get between it. what Hellenism offered the world and how Christianity said? I mean, they were yeah, it was right there. Right. Yeah, right. Okay, so you have touched on an important thing. So I think, um, and so I I don't know if this is a stereotype you were reflecting, um, but it's one that I imagine that's out there, and that is that. Christianity and Christian scholars used to cultivate this image that Christianity was the sort of combination of Greek thinking and Greek philosophy and Plato with Jew- with the ethics of the Hebrew Bible and what's really true. And Judaism was a tradition that rejected all that sort of, you know, Plato, Aristotle, uh, you know, um, the pursuit of knowledge outside. So... Um, and of course, that's just a stereotypical myth right there. So the fact of the matter is, um, I don't know if you'll like this, Ryan, but that Hellenism really influences everybody, by the way, including Islam profoundly. We have tons and tons and tons of Greek inscriptions from the seventh century when Muhammad, I mean, Greek just plays an incredibly important role actually in Islam, but we have numerous Greek loan words, for example, in the Talmud. So for whatever reason, Hellenism just kind of, it's kind of like American capitalism just has exported itself over the world, whether anyone intended it to or not. It just has been the case. It's just the air you breathe. You can't That's help right. it. Yep. Greek culture seems to have done the same thing. I don't know why, but at least, you know, for the Western world and whatnot. And Jews appropriate it too. So to give you an example, I think of Paul as a very Jewish guy. And Paul already in his day thinks of, he, he can talk about um, spirit and flesh, as anyone who yeah. knows Paul talks about this a lot, in a way that when you read your Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, um, the human, a human being isn't spoken of as spirit and flesh. Well, wait a minute. I take that back. In some translations, unfortunately, they will use some of the language that would lead you to believe that ancient Jews believed there's a soul and a body and whatnot. But actually in the Hebrew Bible, there is no word for a human, for a living human body. There's a word for a corpse. And then there's a word for a person, what I would call a, a, a person. But I can't talk about Rob here, Rob's body, while Rob is still alive, apart from who Rob is. It's just all one thing. By the time you get to Paul's era and the rabbis too, there there is a way in which we can talk about body and soul. That, that, I mean, Plato had a complicated theory of the soul, and eventually it's sort of three parts and whatnot, but essentially that... Um, philosophical anthropology gets exported to both Jews and Christians, right? I think one of the main reasons Christianity looks like Christianity and Judaism looks like Judaism, even though they're both rooted in Israelite religion, what I'd call Israelite religion, is partly because non-Jews, I want to say those who weren't, who didn't understand themselves in the tribal senses connected to um, Israelite religion or in the Greek and Roman period would be called the Eudioi, the Jewish people. Um, When you take the same material and you transport it into a different cultural context, things interact with that context. This is why the interpretation of the Bible to say it's pure and it's always been the same, even in the most rigid world, it's actually never the same. It hasn't been if you look back. It's not because 
we're living, we have different questions we ask of it each time, right? Right? If, you know, in the 16th century, um, uh, same-sex relations wasn't an urgent question, right? The Reformation was a question where priestly authority was, celibacy. These were critical questions people worried about. You know, whether a transgendered person could be a part of the church or not, nobody, nobody thought to ask the question. We have that question now. Therefore, interpretation, just where our emphases lie, where we, abortion, it's pretty much non-existent. No matter what anyone tells you, it's pretty much completely non-existent yeah. in the Hebrew. I mean, you, you can't really look to the Bible for guidance here, except indirectly and in how it values life and all those kinds of things. And then you make a case from there. That's why interpretation has to change. So, but I do think we're all influenced by Hellenism in ways that we live and breathe. I have one more answer to your question before we move on, though. Sorry, maybe too much tequila. Um, Christianity and Judaism, or this, this is my theory, but not only my theory. They end up looking so different from each other, partly because as so they're different in a sectarian sense initially, right? So if you take the Gospel of John, for example, it seems to be that uh, people who valued the Gospel of John and understood Jesus in Johannine terms, uh, many of them seem to have still gone to synagogue and identified as Jews and things like that. And at some point, perhaps get expelled or this belief in Jesus becomes intolerable. I think initially there are some Jews who believe in Jesus and some Jews who don't. They still go to the same synagogue, right? They're just like, you know, you can have, God forbid, Jews who vote for Donald Trump and those who don't. God forbid, but, or, or let me just use the more general example, Republicans and Democrats, but they still go to the same synagogue, right? So I think that in the beginning, you have something like that with, that's what's going on. The book of Acts sometimes portrays that, right? Paul goes to some synagogues and talks to people, and some people believe and some people don't. At some point, it's enough of a threat, maybe because it seemed to be a threat to monotheism when people start worshiping Jesus. It's hard to know. In any case, as they separate, now that I think about it, this is a good lesson for our contemporary politics, they, in an effort to identify themselves and understand who they are, they end up differentiating themselves over against the other one. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Jews start saying the Septuagint, the very Jewish translation, Jews are very proud of it in the ancient world and whatnot. Christians are using the Septuagint. Eventually, Jews are like, they make another Greek translation, actually, they make several, and say, the Septuagint's become a corrupt Christian thing, blah, blah, blah. Jews, the fact that they preserve their reading of a Torah on a scroll and not in a book, in a codex book, I think that's a deliberate reaction against Christians who are very much identified with the codex. So, you know, they just start in an effort to say, I'm not you, you create this opposition in a way that's overstated. And I sometimes don't wonder if that's what's happening with Republican and Democrats today. That's where I said, so that I can vote for whomever. If they're on my team, that's who I vote for because they're not the other guy. I don't care what they've done. Mm -hmm. They're not the other guy or girl yeah. or whatever. So I think that part of it is Christianity looks more and more different. By the way, that's really how I become the academic I do. After reading the Gospel of Matthew, I got so perplexed as to how Christianity comes out of Judaism and can end up looking, to me, raised as an Orthodox Jew, like the opposite of Judaism. Like, it was like, how historically is that possible, yeah. right? So, and I think it's, nobody, no individual deliberately said that, but over time, and sociologists showed this, right? That we, when our own identities are threatened, we differentiate ourselves from others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we're in a context right now where 
being oppositional defiant to each other is somehow okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the very thing we're trying to fight with brew theology is to say, no, we want, we want you to come to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be comfortable and it may be hard, but we've, we've all got to come here and keep having this conversation or we're going to annihilate each other. I mean, that's really the outcome. Right. Yeah. And good for you. There's a call to sort of have an examination yourself too, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to what we're sort of told on, on all sides of the yep. political spectrum and what we're fed, which certainly, you know, there's a whole, there's a field of study coming, you know, through with, with social media and, uh, and, um, and media in general yeah. and just sort of what we're fed and, so a call to, to sort of come to the table and think think and uh, wrestle with issues, which, which again, sociologically, right, is difficult. You know, it's a lot more com- – it's a lot less comfortable to come and wrestle at the table than to, um, you know, wrestle with text or wrestle with concepts than to, to come and, you know, have a tightly uh, wound bow at the end of the conversation that you can feel good about leaving the door. I mean, why is it that Martin Luther, who seriously wanted to take James out of the New mm-hmm. Testament, yeah. and for a time even Revelation, can you imagine any modern evangelical Christian going in a sermon, you know, I have my doubts about James. No. Not, not even, ju- just saying I have my doubts um, this is how canon has become canon to a degree in antiquity. It, it, it even wasn't. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a modern problem, almost to a mind-boggling degree. Well, so we talked about Hellenism. What about the Enlightenment? I mean, the, yeah. the Enlightenment gave us this sense of individuality mm-hmm. that it, That's right. in my light understanding of... <laughs> His historical Hebrew context, like they were a group. They thought as a group, they functioned more as a group. There wasn't this sense of I and mine and self that we now all live with yes, on a daily right. basis. Um, how, how has that also kind of shaped this dialogue as we've become more and more independent? And, and also just thinking right. about the development of psychology, that's just right. what in the last 120 right. years about... Maybe right. that's a little short, but like, like we think about ourselves more than I think about myself way more than my parents ever did. Yeah. And we're not that far apart. And so right. like, how does that affect this whole thing as well? Right. Rugged individualism. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and which is maybe at its most extreme in American culture. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, <laughs> by the way, there's a, in Paul, um, there's a part where he talks about the body as temple and everybody yep. always thinks it means the human body and mm-hmm. that's why you shouldn't do th- so yeah. Read it again. I think he means the body of people when they come together are like a temple in a worship space. Mm-hmm. So that's why you don't, you don't do certain kinds of crap in the community when you're in a devote, when you've created holy space. But because we assume... It's my it's, body. If it's in the singular, yeah, we're, we're thinking no of alcohol, ourselves individually. No right. We're thinking of ourselves as individuals. So, but but those kinds of things, that's where it's a great exercise, and you know, and that's why historical criticism is still val, uh, you know, valuable. Is understanding, you know, how did that culture work? And my, there's no psychology, as I mentioned the other day. There's no journalism. There's no there's all sorts of things that we take for granted that are just so embedded in our culture, we don't even think about them, aren't there. Um, Do you think, I'm I'm very concerned about this. um, I'm drinking, yeah, all your stuff. Uh, How we're gonna get back to having dialogue. I mean, I I even myself, and I, I haven't been faithful to it, have like actually, for a few months in 2016, like made myself read Breitbart news. And by the way, it wasn't as bad as I thought it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Okay. But because 
you know, I was going around and said, we're all in our bubble and we all just read things that confirm our point of view. And then I thought, it's kind of like with the New Testament. I thought, well, you know, I kind of do that too. What do I read? I read the New Yorker. I read the New York Times. I read Politico. I mean, what am I reading, right? So I, I made an effort to do that. Um, I, I don't know. In, in the case of the Bible, do you know that Jerome and Augustine had some really intense debates and arguments yeah. about fundamental issues with the Bible? Nobody, their authorities were not diminished in their own day for asking. In fact, they're the great thinkers. They that they asked these questions and pondered these things. It was meaningful. But like the rabbis, they didn't then come to a like, okay, here's what we think Galatians mean. They particularly disagreed about uh, a part of Galatians. It was just left un undone, resolved. The, the only thing I've come close with is I, I actually went to a very conservative college and was on the debate team there. And one of the things that we did differently, we didn't debate just policy, which is what a lot of high schoolers do and a lot of colleges do, but we also, uh, it was called value debate, meaning that the lens of the round was focused on a shared value and that the policy and the definitions come with that. And I wonder, I've been wondering if that's part of this disconnect that one of the ways maybe we can approach each other is that we name a value that we share. I think a lot of us share, let's say, security uh, or family security. We share that we want our families to be taken care of, that we want our kids to be educated, that we want um, them to have a future. And so I think sometimes like the left and the right, we're talking about the same value, but we're not willing to identify it and then come into the same room. Because we might have really different ways of getting to that value. Um, but if part of us have been trained to like see the world through the value and the rest of us are trained to see it through policy alone, it's going to be hard for us to intersect with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's one of my hunches is maybe focusing on some of those kind of value type words or traditional values and building conversations around that maybe that helps inform the way we see the world and the way we do policy but again how do we get those people to the table yeah. is the part i just don't know that's i mean this is like the the million dollar educator yeah. question right? right and and uh, there's a wonderful Quaker scholar, mm -hmm. philosopher out there, Parker Palmer, who writes yeah, about, yeah. right, like, uh, um, you know, starting a meeting, yeah. which is such a radical thought with people going around the table and sharing their, their, their biggest hopes and their, and their biggest fears yeah. in a, in a way that's, you know, has fidelity to, to the genuine hopes and fears of people yeah. around the table. And, and starting with, I, I, couldn't agree with you more. Like the, the human stories that we share. So, you know, having a, um, to try and, to try and let's say have a cross-cultural conversation, asking people questions like, you know, uh, uh, what is your, what is, where do you draw the, you know, the most inspiration in your life or what's who, you know, who is a figure in your life who's played a, um, a role in shaping who you are, you know, at really the core of who you right. are and, and having people respect and listen to those stories, right. And, and, ha and, uh, hold the sacred space for those stories, which is much more difficult than it sounds. Right. And then yeah, getting people to the table and how, how do we, how do we actually, gosh, incentivize feels like such a sterile word. Mm -hmm. Like it's doesn't, it doesn't hold the sacred piece to, to use the word incentivize like that sort of feels but we're but, so capitalistic like. i know i know right it feels like the wrong word and i can't find in the current moment a better word but how do we actually uh shift it's like a, it's a consciousness shift or a mindset shift or a worldview shift if you're tink tinkerton right and and uh you um that that actually there's that there's value in that that'll that will strengthen who my center mm -hmm. as a, as a person to, to hold that sacred space and that respect for, for another person. 
but I don't know that that shift is, I don't know how to make that shift or, you know, I think it's, that's such an interesting question to wrestle with. Could you, in the, to bring it back to Bible for sure. a moment, yep. uh, and because the political split is often a religious split in our culture for perplexing reasons, but nevertheless, if you, because evangelicals also care deeply about the Bible, so I assume if you say, let's discuss the Bible, you know, and we take it seriously. When I get traction at ILIF with more conservative students who were in a terrible minority, I say terrible because ILIF has its own fundamentalism. No, no, right. no. I say that, right? Yeah. It has its own. We could use more diversity of perspective because I often feel like my you know, left-leaning students get lazy in their thinking and they have stereotypes and this really bothers me. So when I have more conservative-leaning students or Mormon students or whatever, I'm often their defender. I mean, I think this throws students, but there's a power dynamic in a classroom, right? Yep. And I, they're paying their tuition. They're doing their homework. They're coming to class. They deserve all the same respect that everyone else does. And I have noticed that often these students, one, I think because I pay them respect, then mutual respect develops. Because some of these students are there because they got a fellowship or something. So they went to ILIF rather than Denver Seminary, but they hate being there. I've had students who come up and just saying, I'm just going to endure. Um, I can think of one student in particular that I eventually won over in the introductory class because he realized... I don't know what he thought coming in. He's like, wow, you really know your Bible. I'm like, I'm a professional biblical scholar. What <laughs> I, what did you think I was what, doing? Right. I mean, uh, all the other stuff you might have thought about me, I could see, but on that. and But he also saw I was maybe passionate about the Bible. I think that's what surprised him. I could engage in long talks with him about Paul. And he, you were also a he woman, was open too. to, yes, and I that mean, might I have been has less be threatening. That might have been less threatening as well. But what I'm saying is, is there are students then then realize, oh, because I'll say, I also love the Bible. I mean, it's like in my blood. 